The Gurkhas, one of the most famous regiments of the British Army, they fought across the globe for Britain in many, many wars. But how did these tough men from Nepal end up fighting for the British? That's the story we're going to answer today, and we're going to look at how they came of age on Delhi Ridge during the Indian Mutiny of 1857. It's an absolutely amazing story, and one I think you're really going to enjoy. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History podcast and YouTube channel with me Christian Parkinson. This is the place for people who love British military history. As regulars of the show will know, I'm deep into my new season all about the Indian Mutiny of 1857-58. It was a brutal, controversial war known in India now as the First War of Independence. Today I'm joined by friend of the show Josh Proven, he's at Land of History on Twitter. He's got a long history of researching and writing about the Gurkhas. There's a great article on his website if you want to check that out. I'll put links to that and to his Twitter profile and to his books below. I started off by asking Josh the obvious question, how did the Gurkhas end up fighting for the British in the first place? Well, it's one of the stories that all Gurkhas know, and most of them will be able to tell you it much better than I do, even if they're still learning English, I think. But um, uh, the... The founding story of the of the Gurkha Brigade is one told very well, in fact, by Colonel Sergeant Kailash Limbu in his book, Gurkha, uh, Better to Die Than Live a Coward. Uh, I recommend you uh, read that, as it is his uh, memoir of his service in Afghanistan, and uh, it's, it's very insightful as to how soldiers think and some of the things they have to go through, and especially Gurkha soldiers. But this story that he tells so well, uh, is the story of Frederick Young, who joined the EIC in 1801 at the age of 15, uh, passing the, the board of shipping, or transport as it was called, uh, with, the, with the piercing uh, interview questions of how old are you and are you willing to die for your country? Having answered honestly in the first and uh, in the affirmative in the second, they gave him uh, an appointment to ship off and that was that was how you got your commission in the east india uh army um now he was indeed willing to die for his country he proved that when during the uh anglo-nepal war uh which uh, uh, broke out in 1815 he found himself confronted by the gurkhas uh and his sepoys uh who were already in terror of these people uh, fled, fled the ambush, leaving him pretty much alone to, uh, to face the enemy. He did so and was captured. And the Gurkhas asked him, why didn't you run away like the others? And he said, I didn't come all this way just to run away. And that struck to the heart of what the Gurkhas felt a, a fighting man should be. And, and some of them apparently even uh, observed that uh, we, we could we could serve under an officer like that, you know. This this, this is good. This is this is a good soldier. Um, so Im immediately there was this respect, and indeed uh, across the army and the columns that went into Nepal to try and sub subdue them, the Gurkha Empire state, um, they quickly found out that they were dealing with very very tough fighters and 
that this was not going to be easy at all, and it wasn't. The Nepal War was a was a, an incredibly difficult um, conflict for the British, and indeed, they only just managed to get the upper hand uh, and threaten Kathmandu. They never took it, and that's a very important part. Um, they 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 had a very a quite generous treaty with the Nepalese. And because Young was so impressed with the Gurkhas when he was a POW, when he got out, he immediately asked permission if he could raise uh, Nepalese, a Nepalese local battalion, as they called them, to, um, to, to command himself. And he was granted permission, and that is the, that is the, that is the first Gurkha regiment in the they were formed from the disbanded remnants of the old Gurkha army the Nepalese army which had to be reformed and that is the nucleus of the of the Gurkhas 1815 1816. Brilliant and were they at that point when they were first formed were they part of the Bengal presidency's East India Company army or were they were somehow separate do you know? Yes, the, uh, it's a bit of both. Um, the Bengal Presidency's army did have direct control over them. Technically, they were on the establishment of the Bengal army, but at the same time, they weren't. Because they were what they were, was known as a local battalion, they were not part of the, the, the line of battle, and they were not referred to as native infantry. So you would have the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, etc. Bengal native infantry, the Gurkhas were known by their by their where they were raised. So, for instance, Frederick Frederick Young raised the first regiment at Sirmur, um, and so they became the first in in brackets Sirmur local battalion of Bengal sort of something <laughs> a complicated quite, title. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so they were distinct. They were more like auxiliaries. Um, in the, those days, for the Bengal army, and they had a lot of them. A lot of famous units ended up, were created this way. Skinner's Horse, for instance, the first Bengal lances. They started out like that, and the, the also the fact, as I mentioned before, this generous treaty uh, that was given to the Nepalese just so the British could get out of the war. Um, spared Kathmandu from being looted, which everybody was very upset about, and it preserved the sovereignty of Nepal. Um, the Nepalese to this day are very proud of the fact that they were never annexed and therefore never technically colonized, and therefore all the recruits that came to the Gurkha regiments had to be allowed by the Nepalese government. Now, at this stage, of obviously, it was easier to do, and actually laws came in later on that made it very difficult to do this, to recruit Gurkhas, but that's the, that's the status we're looking at here within the Bengal army, volunteers acting as auxiliaries for the Bengal presidency. Brilliant. And just quickly, before we move on, were they officered in the same way that a Bengal native infantry regiment might have been? For example, was it mainly British officers and uh, Nepalese soldiers, you know, maybe up to sort of NCO level? Roughly, yes, as far as I'm aware that I've seen. I've not dug too deeply into how the local battalions were structured. It did tend to be, I think, a little bit more at the um, uh, whim of the commander-in-chief who, who raised 
said local battalion, but I believe it was the same sort of establishment. So you have a a, a high tier of um, a, a high tier of few British officers, usually the field officers and up to the rank of yeah captains and lieutenants, very few ensigns, a much smaller officer establishment anyway. And then you have the the very revered position now and all through the Victorian era, uh, the Subodar Major, uh, who is the senior native, in quotes, uh, officer. And today they call them the senior Gurkha officer, who is basically the equivalent of a colonel. But uh, in those days, it occupied a strange space that was somewhere between a very high officer and an NCO. Lots of Brit British officers in the regular native infantry were by this point treating their subadar majors and Indian officers as sergeants, essentially. And that was a big problem. One of the causes of the Indian mutiny was the breakdown of the relationship between the native officers and the company, uh, the you know, European officers. This didn't happen in the Gurkha regiments because Young made sure that it didn't. Brilliant. Well, let's fast forward to our focus today then, which is 1857. We've got a bit of background. We know where these units are from and, and how they came about. But 1857, as we know, as I'm currently covering on my season about the Indian mutiny, the Bengal army mutinied, but the Gurkhas didn't. Can you give us a sense of why they felt they were different and why they didn't mutiny when most of the Bengal army units did? Yeah, I think I can. Um, the well, first of all, we know that they're not technically native infantry. Not only do the Gurkhas know this, but the the Bengal sepoys uh, know this, and they are not shy about showing it either. It's a very much a a, symbi a symbiotic, if that's the right word, relationship of difference here. Um, from the very first. It was it was sort of um, a joke that the Bengal army was usually made up of quite high caste sepoys who were kind of snobbish about stuff and they were quite difficult to deal with now and again. Uh, at least from a British point of view, if you didn't care to actually find out what they wanted and what they what was going on. Anyway, so you already have that. Then you add to that the fact that the the Highlanders of Nepal have very little in common with the the plainsmen of the bengal uh air of bengal and hindust wider hindustan in fact if anything they're the enemies of the plain they they don't look like the people down there they don't think like them they have different ways of doing things they despise them as uh, each despises the other as lesser so there's a hefty bit of racism here from the himalayas down and back up the the Gurkhas quickly, due to this sort of exceptionalism that was just inherent in the in how they how they all how they were organized, um, fostered a very strong regimental identity through traditions through forty years from eighteen fifteen to eighteen fifty seven ish I believe um, of service, and they they I mean they didn't they referred to the they refer to the bengal army as the kalalog which means black people 
or the Purbayas, which means people from the East, I believe. Um, and these were distinctive separate separating terms to show that we're not like them. Uh, in fact, it got to the point by the Sikh wars in the 1840s that uh, the European officers of the Gurkhas, uh, who are still local battalions, took pride in the fact they did not have NI after the regimental designation and would be insulted if they were ever called native infantry. It was a matter of regimental pride that we're Gurkhas, we're not native infantry. Um, so you already had so that's a that's they they do not consider themselves part of the Bengal army. They don't even like actually messing or hanging out with the other Bengal sepoys. They request now and again to be encamped nearer the British. And when the when the when the cartridge crisis occurred, for instance, they they went out of their way. I think on one occasion, at least, so regimental tradition states that they they return. Because the cartridge, remember, the cartridge situation was resolved and they issued new cartridges. But the Gurkhas gave back the reissued new cartridges and asked for the tainted ones back to show that they didn't have a problem in the first place with any cartridge they were given to use. They thought it was unsoldierly to be messing around with this. It's a cartridge, you fire it, it's, you know, it is what it is. And so, when the mutiny came out, they had nothing in common with the Bengal sepoys. They had no, uh, unlike the rest of the army that was able to, through its messes and sort of through its own regimental systems, spread the word quite quickly and have these um, sort of um, mutiny sort of little governments like the ones uh, that Mangal Pandi used and things like that. Uh, the, they had no in with the Gurkhas. I mean, they didn't even speak the language um, really. They would have to go through a different route, and there was no and there was no door open to get the Gurkhas on their side. So the Gurkhas stayed with the British. However, actually, there was a Gurkha mutiny, but it was about pay. It had nothing to do. It was about money, which is a much more common so common soldiers' complaint. The the Nasiri battalion had not been paid. So they refused to obey their orders and then looted a treasury of about 7,000 rupees. And they all had to be rounded up and arrested. Uh, only, if, only a few of the ringleaders were executed or punished, I believe. And then there was a report a little later saying that they were completely back to normal and nothing was wrong. And that, that was also at the same time, wasn't it, around May 1857? It was. That was very concerning to people, um, especially because it was up in the in the hills uh, where where the Gurkhas were stationed. And um, yeah, they, they, they caused a panic when they when they sort of went on the rampage, so to speak, even though it was a very orderly mutiny. It was because uh, the main show had re pretty much kicked off, I believe, and they were or just before, when everything was uncertain about the cartridges. So, yeah, it, it, didn't, it didn't help people to see them as, as, as loyal soldiers that you could trust. Well, that's an interesting segue then to the battalion we're going to focus on today, which was the Simor Battalion. They were trusted, and they ended up in the place of honour on Delhi Ridge as the British besieged the city they'd recently lost with a view to taking it back. Can you give us a sense of who were the Seymour Battalion? Why were they more trusted, perhaps, than other 
locally raised units. And how did they end up at the place of honor on the ridge there, at, at, at the key strategic location, which we'll talk about in a minute? The Sermoor Battalion is, was the, I believe, through a sequence of interesting events and how regiments are raised and disbanded and reformed and things like that. There were several Gurkha regiments, as I just alluded to. Um, the Sermoors were the oldest one, the one that Young first raised at Sermoor. And they had a very, dis they had little distinctions that set them apart. Uh, such as the very famous red and black uh, dicing around the hat that the Siamuras used uh, right up until the formation of the current Gurkha Brigade. Uh, and it's still used within the brigade as a general sign of the Gurkhas, basically. They, um, why they were trusted more than anybody else is difficult to say as well. It's possible because of the reputation that they already had as being good soldiers and because they had not shown any inclination to do anything except follow orders. That's probably a good indication because the British didn't have a lot of men, so they were probably willing to take a chance of, if you're going to use non-European soldiers, the Gurkhas, being as they're the only ones around as well, uh, for the most part, um, might not use them. There was a fair amount of them. They were commanded by uh, Major Charles Reed, uh, who were, and he uh, at Dera Dun, which is a famous uh, regimental depot. Uh, there are 490 of them in six companies, and they were close enough to respond. I think they they were they were summoned on. There was someone. Let me check here on the 15th of May, and they linked up with the Delhi Relief Force as they were marching on the ridge itself, I believe, uh, on the 30th of May. They got a very cool reception despite just by showing up because these are obviously what, the, what they were derived, they were derisively called native troops deliberately. Those native soldiers there, they called them, which is an insult to the Gurkhas at this time, as we've just seen. And whether it was the position of honor is, is open to question. Reed himself thought that he'd been basically thrown into the fire with his, as he liked to call them, little, little, little boys, um, because of the Gurkha's diminutive stature. Um, there's nothing diminutive about a Gurkha, but they are quite short. Um, and they, he thought basically he was being put there uh, because there were quite a lot of artillery batteries positioned around Hindu Rao's house. Now, I've just said the fair, I've just said that, so it means I need to double back a second. That position of honor was called Hindu Rao's house. It was called the main picket, um, and it was a it was a mansion. I can describe the position a little later. I just wanted to explain what that was. Their position was at a large mansion called Hindu Rao's house on maps and just generally there. So he thought that they put him there so that they could blast it apart if the Gurkhas mutinied or just uh, or or they can prove themselves interesting, interesting. yeah that makes sense I, I suppose at this point given what had happened in previous locations the british were extra nervous around anyone who wasn't british i think that's the case pretty much yeah yeah well we've we've now mentioned hindu rao's house i was lucky enough to visit there uh, a month or two ago the house still looks exactly the same i don't know if you've had a chance to see it 
I have not. No, um, I've I know a couple of people who who who've gone out there and seen it. You now one of them. Another one is uh, General Peter Deffel, uh, Sir Peter Deffel, uh, whose book I heartily recommend. By the way, it's got a very nice chapter in um, which is for the podcast Gurkha Odyssey: Campaigning for the Crown by Peter Duffel. It's got a very good account of the Siege of Delhi. And um, oh, great. No, I'm I'm glad you got to see it. I'm I'm very fascinated that it is still roughly as it was because it's a hospital now, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. So basically, um, you you go into the hospital. It's a it's a modern hospital up on the ridge there in Delhi. But if you go into the centre of the the compound, you look and you think, oh my word, that's that's Hindu Rao's house. You know, you look at the photos, you look at the position of the columns. And you can see it's still there. Now, it's grown up all around it. There's big buildings all around it. But the actual house, I mean, unless I'm severely mistaken, looks pretty much exactly the same to me. So that was quite fantastic to, to go and see. It was just a shame there wasn't a position where I could get a nice photo of the whole house because it's so built up all around it. But, but well worth a visit if you ever find yourself in Delhi. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll have to try and find a convenient rooftop somewhere overlooking it or something to get a yeah. view, I guess. Exactly. Well, funnily enough, I couldn't find it at first. And I went to the local, there was like a, a police patrol there. And I showed them the photo, the famous photo of uh, the Gurkha standing outside Hindu Rao's house. And I looked at it and pointed and they kind of smiled and they pointed and, and they were right. They, they sent me exactly to the right place. So they recognized it straight away. That's awesome. That's very fun. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, be anyway, before I get too overexcited with my, with my tales of traveling around India, maybe for the audience, you could just explain a little bit more about Hindu Rao's house. You've mentioned that it was up on the ridge there and that there was a lot of batteries around it. Why do you think it was such an important spot? And can you maybe describe what it was like to be based up there for those guys? I, I will do my best. The walled city in those days, the old walled city of Delhi, occupied a position on the west bank of the Jamna or Yamna uh, River. And the northern walls were overlooked by a spur of rocky ground, which rose about 60 feet above the river and followed its course down towards the northwestern corner of the city. Uh, it ended roughly where the Grand Trunk Road goes in from on, on an east-west axis and the Delhi Canal. Uh, so you can see here, if you look at a map as well, that that side of the northern side of Delhi is is relatively narrow as well. And the fact that the ridge runs down towards one of its corners is quite strategically significant. Now, it unlike what I think people imagine, the ridge does not actually border one like whole wall. You can't use it to blockade the city very easily. It's quite a specific feature, especially in those days. It must be quite difficult to get your bearings in a, in like a massive metropolitan city. But um, back in the day, it was much more open out there, and the. And it was used, therefore, as a place where you could build mansions and, and, and large sort of houses where you could escape the city and have some air and nice views and th of the river and things like that. And this is exactly what a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Raj Hindu Rao 
did. He was a Maratha nobleman who was, I believe, the brother-in-law of the uh, Maharaja Walia. And he was also a, a pretty good friend of um, the Governor General Lord Auckland. I believe that's the 1830s to 1840s. And he he had he had this place built and he wasn't there at the time <laughs> but that's why it's called hindu rao's house uh very simple now the position on it fatefully is towards its southern end and it's very there and it and it's 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 within easy reach of the kabul and mori gates and uh, once you have gone through the the suburb and vegetable market of what was called Sabzi Manzi, uh, Manzi, I believe. And so it's actually one of the closest structures to the walls. And that's why it had to, it, it was made, made the main picket and why it became the focus of such um, determined attacks, because it, in a way, it became the key if you took it and held it then the batteries protecting it would probably have to be given up that's the sort of the that's the relationship it has to the rest of the the rest of the ridge and just for anyone who doesn't know the, the british were in a strange situation weren't they they were besieging delhi but in fact they were actually outnumbered in a, and in a way were besieged themselves it was a very strange position to be in yes yes they were and for details on the siege of Delhi, obviously refer to your uh, your your videos and podcasts. Also, uh, our mutual friend Marco Sidhu's book on the siege of Delhi, which will give you all the information you might ever need. What it's what engineers from the Woolwich trained engineers would call an irregular siege. It's what you and even the, it's the most regular of irregular sieges because they didn't even have the siege guns at the beginning <laughs> to even properly bombard the place. Usually, if it's even if it's a, an irregular siege, you want to take the place quickly. Therefore, it's assumed that you have the means to do so, and the British did not have the means to do so at the beginning. So, what it it, it became was sort of like a force of observation. The Delhi Field Force was what it was called because it's actually quite low numbers, and they just got up onto the ridge and decided, well, if we stay here long enough, we can get the guns up uh, and reinforcements up. And we can just make sure that we tie the tie the rebels down. And that's the plan. That's what's happening here. So let's focus then on on our on our guys from the Seymour Battalion. So they've they've taken over this main picket up at Hindu Rao's house. What happens next? What was their first taste of battle, and how did they perform? The the first taste of battle was apparently on the on the 9th of June. Um, uh, very early in the morning. A lot of battles in India start quite early in the morning. A lot of marching happens before full daylight, to be honest. It used to be, it's basically the tradition. Uh, a lot it's so hot. Oh, yes, exactly. Anybody, if 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 you know what you're doing, you get your men, you, you stop marching actually before this, uh, like in the early morning, and you've marched mostly through the night and <laughs> in the dark hours. Um, not always possible, but that's 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 a good idea if you're doing if you're doing a lot of fighting or activity in India, um, especially wearing those sorts of clothes. So um, a large enemy force came out of Delhi 
and they feed they they fed through the sabzi manzi and out onto the plain and tried to uh, assault the the british position through the the main picket at hindu rao's house at that time and the forces would fluctuate slightly as the siege went on the gurkhas had themselves and two companies with 60th rifles in support and i believe two to three batteries of artillery were in relative proximity and could offer fire support to the position so it's very strong and so as well as having to sort of scramble uphill slightly 60 feet is not a large elevation but it's 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 fairly prominent and especially when you're being shot at uh so reed was aware that he was sort of being tested his men were being tested and he had had reason to believe that the Gurkhas would remain uh, under orders and under discipline because they'd they'd been there was this this sort of trope during the Indian mutiny that any non-European regiment would usually be approached by random mutineers and asked to defect. The Gurkhas had a habit of just laughing at these people, which encouraged their British officers no end. And on one occasion, they had to execute some some rebels, some of them whom were Brahmins, and you're not supposed to kill Brahmins, um, touch them even, look at them. Uh, if you're of the wrong caste, Gurkhas were Hindus uh, as well, and so technically those rules applied, but they just followed orders and executed them. Uh, and Reed observed that, well, I don't know how they'll perform, but e executing the Brahmins is a good sign uh, in typical British Empire sort of fashion. And Indeed, when called upon to now face a large enemy attack, the Gurkhas uh, repulsed it. And not only that, Reed decided to just show the field force what he could do, and then he and he chased them back into the walls. Um, up to this point, as we know, they'd been sort of like sneered at. Those are just those native infantry guys. We don't really trust them. But having seen this very assured display of prowess and um, superiority when the Gurkhas returned to the camp they were apparently cheered by the every every European regiment that they passed brilliant so it was a great initiation and it really proved them mm -hmm. definitely definitely and off the back of that first engagement I understand there was many more one of which I think uh, the the mutineers tried to try to induce them to come and join them is that right could you tell us a bit about that yeah, the mutineers were always go going to target non-Europeans to see if they could get them to, to change sides. Honestly, in, in Indian warfare, it's not unusual at all, to be honest, to have a bit of bartering going on about to see if you could get, you could pull someone off from the other side. It's actually quite normal uh, throughout history. Um, you know, it, it was a very business-like arrangement back in the day. Basically, if you offered more money, then... I don't mind fighting for you. But in this case, there was a bit of ideology involved as well. And the mutineers, on one occasion, uh, and the many attacks they launched on Hindu Rao's house, uh, attempted to get the Gurkhas to switch sides. They they came over and said, Gurkhas, Gurkhas, we're waiting for you. Come come over to our side. Uh, I think there was they tried to actually specifically give them incentives of of like, various money some some women i believe was one of the offers at one point and 
you know, they were they were encouraged to hear the Gurkhas reply, yes, we're, we're coming. Now, that's a terrifying thing to hear a Gurkha say, actually, if um, you know that the Gurkha war cry is Ayo Gurkali, which means the Gurkhas are coming. And they came so over... a bit of double meaning. A bit of a yeah, double meaning. <laughs> exactly. Um, and if, the, if this ever gets made into a movie, that should absolutely be <laughs> in there. But yes, the Gurkhas came over and um, the uh, they... They they did not they did not switch sides they they opened fire and chased the, the mutineers back back into the safety of Delhi. <laughs> Brilliant! It's a great story. Are there any other interesting stories or anecdotes from the siege that you want to share? Anything else from your research that you found interesting? Oh, the, yes, absolutely. Um, the the thing with the Gurkhas is that they are a very storied um, unit and. I mean, sadly, that probably means some of some stuff didn't happen um, because regimental histories being what they are, they tend to basically say that this is part of our regimental history and this therefore had to happen. But nevertheless, it's part of the law. And a lot of the things that the Gurkhas apparently did on, at Hindurao's house do, to be honest, seem quite logical. And there's no reason to believe they didn't happen, especially because the the traditions hadn't really taken root to the extent they have now um then so you have things like uh, uh examples of great stolidity and discipline under pressure um what i didn't say before when because you I mean, you asked actually i just forgot to say um the the living conditions at Hindu Rao's house and across Delhi Ridge were terrible. There was there was disease in the camp. There was cholera in the camp. Obviously, the usual camp disease of dysentery and typhus and things like that, because it's very difficult to get good water. Um, luckily, they did have water sources, but it's still it's summer in India. It was like a kiln at Hindu Rao's house, therefore, and the constant artillery bombardment from the walls meant the dust was constantly circulating in the air and the diff it was difficult to get rid of the dead and so you have even more problems about disease and the stench apparently up there was awful and flies were basically swarming around in large clouds all the time so it was an awful place to be in and the Gurkhas uh, took it very stolidly they took it very professionally uh, and with good humor, as the Gurkhas are famous for. And uh, there's an example of an artillery round smashing through the house and killing one of the sentries, or both of the sentries, who were on duty. And at that time, the one round even hit the colors, because the Gurkhas carried colors at that time, um, and, and snapped the staff. Uh, after all the, all the confusion died down, it was just complete order as the NCOs just took control and a, cor and a corporal apparently just sort of wandered, uh, just sort of strolled coolly across the, the destroyed rubble and things like that and reposted his sentry without really observing anything wrong. Uh, stories like that are quite common. Then during the, the many attacks and physical confrontations with the mutineers, you have many instances of individual bravery and some poignancy. For instance, there's one where Reed's adjutant, a man named Lyle Singh, 
uh, killed a man called Sirdar Badehur, who is apparently a famous uh, sepoy soldier from the old Bengal army. And having killed him, Reed went to inspect the body and found the what he called the ribbon of India still pinned to his uniform. Uh, I presume this is probably... I'd, I'd, I'd like to say I know which medal precisely that refers to, but I can't bring it to mind at the second, but it was a very high order. And it just sort of brought home the sadness of what many East India Company officers, especially ones that were fighting with the Gurkhas, felt about the mutiny and how it had happened and how it could have been avoided. And, and, and good soldiers like uh, Sirdar Badahur were now you know, in this position where they were being killed by people they used to fight alongside which many found many found very sad then as well as discipline you have a, a, a very good example of the the fighting spirit of the Gurkhas which is um that so the, they're also plagued by snipers because guys from the city could sort of work their way at it through the buildings of the vegetable market at Sabzi Manzi and sort of take their time, get their targets, see if they can focus on windows and things like that, pick off sentries. And there was one guy who was really bothering the Gurkhas one day. And so two of the, two, two Gurkha sepoys um, sort of just decided, let's go get him. And so they worked their way very, very uh, stealthily up to the position where he was in, got on either side of the aperture where he was um, shooting from. And the next time he stuck his head out to fire, one of them brought down a cookery on his head and beheaded him. Classic. Classic Gurkha move. That's the move, yes. <laughs> there was a lot of that going on during the Siege of Delhi. Um, and they were, they were very good with their knives. It was, it was legendary up to this point how good they were with their knives. Um, and it's stuff like that which, give, uh, which reinforce the, the, their willingness to fight the, and their need as well to be kept under control because they were proper fighters. They, they wanted to get in as well as being disciplined and, and, and close hand to hand. Reed uh, wrote about one instance where there was a large attack coming in and he was holding his men back. And one of, one of them said, pleaded, came, crawled up to him and pleaded with him to let them go and, and fight because he said that the, the rebels thought they were frightened of, that the, the Gurkhas were frightened. You've got to let us go. And Reed uh, sort of used this to ex exemplify what a Gurkha officer is supposed to do. And that is to remain, it's just remain very pleasant, very calm, very polite. Don't order, you know, this is a, I believe this was quite a low ranking sepoy who came up to him to ask him this question. And he just turned around and said, no, no, not yet. I'll let you go presently. And he was completely satisfied with that and went back to his place in the line. And then indeed they went forward and, and were able to attack. And this isn't a way that people dealt with their troops, uh, especially um, non-European troops. No, 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 no troops were tr treated like this <laughs> um, in, in that manner. But it was known that you had to, you had to treat the Gurkhas differently to get, to get the best out of them for the, for the, for the regiment. And 
this can also be seen right down to the lowest the lowest uh, this sort of fighting spirit can be seen right down to the lowest of the regiment which would in, which would be the line boys who are men uh, sorry who are who are children who are born in the regimental lines in the cantonments not in nepal but are put on the strength of the regiment and there's quite a lot of these uh, i forget the exact number um I, I think i wrote it in the article that a high proportion of the medals handed out to the Gurkhas during the Delhi operation were to line boys. And for reasons like this, there was one line boy who wasn't supposed to be up at uh, Hindu Rao, who was meant to be in the cantonment, who was meant to be in the in, in the camp, because their job was to fetch and carry, basically. And he had gone up to be with his father, and unfortunately his father was killed Gurkhas weren't invincible. They took very heavy casualties up there. And he took his place for the rest of the attack, um, firing his his father's musket. They because the other thing is that the Gurkhas didn't have the same weaponry that the British soldiers had, because the tradition was you give the the non-European troops the slightly older weapons and you increase it. The gap never changes. We have the best ones. You have this one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's just a little factoid. Nothing to do with the story, really. Uh, the the boy was wounded, and he came up to Major Reed um, and showed him his wound very proudly. And he was he was he that boy was awarded a medal, I believe, and was put on the strength of the regiment as a as a full as a full private, I believe. Tons of stories about the Gurkhas uh, at at uh, Delhi Ridge. Um, they held held up there for all the summer, and um, you should check them out. Yeah, no, I think I think there's definitely uh, a lot more a lot more reading I want to do on the subject because it's fascinating. Now we'll probably wrap up quite soon, but I've just got a last couple of questions. You mentioned there was two companies of the 60th Rifles up on the ridge alongside them. Now, the 60th in the Peninsula War has been well covered on this channel, not done much during the Victorian era, but can you give us a sense of how these two regiments bonded and, and how, how that became visible? Yeah, uh, the, first of all, I think there was an initial sort of taking to each other after the initial engagements and, you, and everybody figured out who, could they, who, who they could trust, especially with the rifles because uh, the Gurkhas were already wearing green at this point so there's an initial sort of affinity there they look like riflemen they act like riflemen they they don't fight they're sort of irregular troops they they're good for for the work that line troops aren't necessarily associated with um i think by the end of the the siege there was much more than two companies they were initially reinforced by another two so there was four for the majority of it at least and another uh, unit from the corps of guides um and the the 60th and the Gurkhas were up there in this really difficult position, this really awful in under these awful conditions being attacked as 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 Reed said, morning, noon, and night, um, under constant bombardment, disease, stench, it's, um, sharing that those sharing those hardships uh, makes for strong bonds, and the 60th soon became very friendly with the Gurkhas and vice versa, the Siamurs, we should be saying at this point, Siamur battalions. 
uh, battalion and the the you know the the 60th started referring to them as um our Gurkhas, the, the them Gurkhas of ours and the and the and the Siamoas re responded by saying they're, they're our riflemen and there was a sort of they called it apparently they started calling each other brother and things like that so they became very close up there and it's part of regimental tradition that after the bat after the siege they become so close that the Gurkhas the Siamoas at that time requested to have um because they were designated Gurkha rifles shortly after Delhi, um, red piping to go on their uniforms, like the 60th had, as a as a as a and, and, and it's, it was such it's such a such a, a sort of a a nice thing from the old army you might call it. This was how regiments used to sort of acknowledge each other uh, after going through an event like that. We'd like to wear some of your color. The Gurkhas called it lali. Um, the red that runs through the uniform and Peter Duffel talks about the continuing stitch of Lali that connects the Siamos of those days to the Gurkhas of today and indeed the rifle brigade of today from back then as well. So I just want to wrap up Josh by asking would you say this is where the Gurkhas really came of age where they went from being you know just another locally raised unit to now being a unit that was on par, considered on par with many within the British Army, that bond that still goes on today. Was this the coming of age of the Gurkhas? In many ways it was, but it's still part of a process, I think. Um, this is definitely, re this is really where the Gurkha legend begins. This is when indeed the British, because this was when the British started seeing everything differently in India. This is this is where they started. This is the era, the beginning of the era, 1857 to this is the end of the East India Company. This is the end of that. This is the beginning of the Raj proper. And this is when all the traditions that we cl most closely associate with the British in India really start to occur. Such uh, And this includes the famous fighting units of the Indian army, such as the Bengal Lances, for instance, the Sikh regiments, the, the Rajput regiments, all those specific, what they called the, 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 the martial classes or something like that. That's where this really comes into play. And the Gurkhas were definitely, were absolutely one of them. Their performance during the siege of Delhi through the Indian mutiny really impressed the British. It struck a chord in, in that they had stayed on the British side and thereafter, they become ever more present in a sort of a conscious imagination as part of the Indian army, but at the same time, in a strange way, still separate, still in a way more uh, almost like British infantry rather than um, um, rather than uh, in quotes Indian infantry because you know it, they couldn't be Indian infantry; they were Nepalese infantry. Nepal was its own place. So that was all right. That was very proper that it should be that way. And the coming of age uh, arc was still happening. It continued, it would continue over the next hundred years. It would continue to the Dardanelles and Gallipoli, where they were brought in 
to because the British commanders didn't know if they could trust their Muslim, unfairly didn't know if they could trust their Muslim troops to fight the Turkish. And the Gurkhas fought, the Gurkhas of this tradition fought on, because uh, it wasn't the same regiments, uh, fought on in 1915 as they had in 1815 defending their homeland and as they had done in 1857 defending Delhi Ridge. But there is one last thing I want to ask you, Josh, which is what are you working on right now? And can any of the viewers and listeners, where can they follow your work and maybe get in touch with you if they want to keep in touch? Yes, uh, I am currently writing uh, my book on the siege of Pensacola, uh, which is the Spanish and the American Revolution. That will hopefully be available by the end of the year. I'm also appearing uh, as the author of chapters in two other Hellion books this year. One is uh, edited collection by Zach White on siege warfare in the Napoleonic Wars. And the other one is uh, the is the um, Warfare in America edited by Don Hagist, uh, which is the which I for which I used the basis of my the talk I gave in Derby last year. There is also um, another chapter I have written about completely spiraling off in the other direction, Henry VI for Ian Dale's... <laughs> um, uh, You're a man, of, a man of many talents, Josh. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Apparently. <laughs> um, we'll see. <laughs> but that uh, Ian Dale's uh, omnibus of Kings and Queens is going to be out in September. And if you want to hear my take on Henry VI, then do please buy that. Apart from that, come and stop by Historyland, Adventures in Historyland on YouTube or the blog. And come and say hi with a tweet on Twitter at Land of History. So thanks to Josh for that. I thought that was brilliant. I hope you also found it fascinating. Make sure you subscribe, guys, because in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be walking the battlefield of Delhi once more. I'm going to be following in the footsteps of the men who stormed the walls who went through those gates in September 1857. Amongst them, of course, were the Gurkhas. In that attack, Major Reed was badly wounded, but his life was saved by his orderly, one of those hardy Gurkhas, Lal Singh Tapper. Also in the next episode, I'll be walking in the footsteps of John Nicholson, that fascinating but controversial character who we discussed in the previous episode, and I'll also be visiting his grave, so you will want to see and hear that. So make sure you subscribe, guys, leave a comment, leave a review, and do consider signing up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you do that, you get a free copy of my book all about the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. 